Welcome to episode 88 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, how are you doing tonight? Hey, brother. How's it going, Tony? It's going great. Before we get started, because we're going to jump right into our topic, but I have a huge announcement to make. Let's do it. So... As I mentioned last week, we have two new shows coming on board. One of them has not announced yet, but they are confirmed. So I'm not going to say them, but we are welcoming Brian Fletcher, who is uh, on staff at the same church that Heath Taws from the Nerd Nerd Gospel Podcast uh, works. He is coming on board with a podcast called The Gospel Changes Everything, uh, which is uh, sort of a quick hit uh, a little bit longer than five for fruit, but along the same vein, uh, usually like five to 10 minutes. And it's basically just reflections on like how the gospel changes the way we see the world, how we live. Uh, it's really good stuff. Check it out. It's in the mega feed already. Uh, there's just the one episode since he started, uh, but you can get all his information, uh, should be on our website soon, but definitely check it out. It's good stuff. So head on over to reformedpodcasts.com and you can see this new show along with all the others. There's a lot of great stuff now. Yeah, and stay tuned because we have another big announcement that I believe will be coming next week or the week after. It just depends on when they get around to actually publishing it. Sometimes Thursday, sometimes Friday. If you know what I'm talking about, then you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we are so good at building suspense. We are. So, Jesse... So, Tony. Let's talk about apostasy. Let's do it. Let's get a little apostasy talk going on. Yeah, so let me uh, get my burlap uh, sack to put on and some dust and ashes to throw over my shoulder because this is kind of a heavy topic. It is heavy. So, um, this topic came uh, to mind. Uh, if you haven't heard, uh, I'm a little surprised if most of our audience has not uh, heard it in one form or another, but um, the guys over at Popcorn Theology, who are part of the Reformed Pubcast Network, uh, did an interview with Derek Webb, uh, who is formerly of Cademan's Call, um, has been doing solo work for like 15 years, um, amazing musician, super talented songwriter, um, and was for, I think a lot of our audience. And I know for me, particularly his music was kind of an anthem of the theology that I was learning and kind of diving into, particularly, um, some of his work with Cademan's call. And so he has, uh, since then has apostatized and he would use that language. He and understands what that means and he accepts that. And so he did this interview on, um, popcorn theology, which is sort of a weird, uh, a weird mix, but, uh, leave it to the guys over there to strike while the iron is hot. And they took advantage of the opportunity to really kind of press him and talk to him about his faith and what happened and where he's at and all of those kinds of things. So um, because he's been such a huge voice in sort of the young reformed restless movement, almost by accident, I don't think he had any intention to do that, but a lot of guys uh, in that movement really were gravitating to his music. Um, He was expressing a lot of this theology before um, some of the other kind of Calvinist bands were. Uh, I think it's pertinent for us to kind of talk about uh, him and sort of use his um him as a kind of a case study for sort of the topic of apostasy he certainly is a prototype because here's somebody where we are not from the outside in levying the critique that he's apostatized but he would in fact describe it that way as you have said and he knows his theology particularly well so he's very outspoken on this topic and he communicates with a fair amount of passion. Everybody should go listen to the interview because he's very passionate yeah. about where he comes from. And he's not really that antagonistic about it. No, he's so not. So he's really kind of this poster child for somebody who has decided very forthrightly and after a lot of thoughtfulness that Christianity makes no sense. And that even though he's well-versed in the theology and give you all of this, all the theological underpinnings for his former belief system, he finds it to be completely irrelevant. Yeah, and I think it bears stating, um, we're not going to spend really any time on this at all, but it bears stating that um, apostasy, generally speaking, is not divorced from, and that was not an intentional pun or anything, but it's not divorced from our piety and from our practice and from our, our moral lives. For sure. And so it would be disingenuous, uh, disingenuine for us not to acknowledge that his um, his leaving the faith came on the heels of um, a pretty significant sexual scandal and ultimately a divorce from his wife. 
Um, so, so, you know, obviously we don't, we don't want to speculate on the internal motivations apart from what he himself has said, but, um, it, it would be, uh, a little bit, we would be remiss to not at least note that there's a correlation between deep sin problems and falling away from the faith. And I suppose it's a chicken or the egg situation, right? Did he fall away from the faith? Because he faced the the consequences of his sin, or did he sin because he had already fallen away from the faith? And there's really no there's really no way to answer which of those came first. So, um, what we're gonna do is we're we're gonna kind of explain. You know, we wanna we wanna not load this up too much with clips. There's a couple um, there's a couple things he says that we really wanna let him say in his own voice. But th- there's mostly what we're gonna do is we're gonna summarize. So I would encourage everybody stop this episode, go over to. Th- popcorn theology download and listen to their episode and subscribe to their feed there it's a great show they do really good stuff with movies usually which is why it was so weird that Derek webb was on them but um, listen to the episode um slowly really think through it and really consider what he has to say because he's a very sharp thinker he's a very articulate guy and contrary to some of the other kind of high profile um contemporary christian singers that have kind of exploded um he really knows his stuff he really really understands and really embraced um at the time really embraced reformed theology so this isn't a guy you know this isn't a, a general evangelical who you know came to faith at a billy graham crusade and died to decided to you know it's not it's not somebody who was sort of on the shallow in the shallow end of the faith this was a person who not only dove in head first but you can hear it when he talks. He really has studied this stuff. He's he's correcting the guys on the reform uh, on the popcorn theology show about points of theology, and he's actually correcting them, like really correcting them. So right. it, it's important for us, and we'll we'll make the point more strongly later. But it's important for us to rep to sort of recognize that if Derek Webb, who is someone who embraced the reformed faith, who understood what the scriptures had to teach about election and predestination and um, perseverance of the saints, all these things. If someone like that can fall from the faith, then any of us can fall from the faith. So the, the main point we want you to take away tonight is that Derek Webb should be a cautionary tale for us, that we can get very puffed up with knowledge. And if there's not change by the Holy Spirit, that all of that knowledge is for naught. So I'm praying that this is a season that he will look back at in his life as a, a period of backsliding, that's my prayer for him, that he will someday um, be proven to have been among the elect and that this is just a period of wandering. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but that's my prayer. Do you have any thoughts to add before we move on? No, uh, let's go to the, the clip. So we're going to play this first clip, which is um, it, he's, he's explaining kind of sort of a parable that he uses um, to uh, describe the deconstruction reconstruction process that he says led him to walk away from the faith. I think that the word deconstruction gets a pretty bad rap. And I think that everybody really should be in a perpetual, a real time state of de and reconstruction. I think really what that means to me is like just a reckoning with and, a, and an, an auditing of what you believe and why. And even if it's like, and, and uh, to, uh, to the extent that you're able to come into new information and really hear people's stories and weigh them against where you are and, and in a real time way, measure out kind of what rings true and then be honest about what you find, what your findings are. In other words, hold your spirituality or your worldview as more of a hypothesis to be constantly tested. And if it proves to not feel true or ring true to you, to be honest about that and to talk about that um, and then continue to test and to go specifically into the points that don't and figure out why. Why don't they? And why did they? And why don't they now? Mm. And, and uh, just to be in a, in a, in a constant state of uh, examination, to be critical about it, to be thoughtful about it. It's worth your time because um, otherwise you kind of lull yourself into just leaning on your understanding of a particular set of words and that set of words is really your religion it's like well i just really love these particular words and if you don't express what you believe by these same particular words well then i'm not going to be positive really where you are in your life and i'll probably pray for you and um and i might kind of evangelize you to my set of words because i think my words are the right words but really we're just worshiping words 
And, and so it's like, I think it's good to kind of constantly, and it's, here's another way to say it, is to be willing, if you really believe that what you're leaning your weight on eternally is real and alive, you shouldn't really be scared of the idea of examining it to the extent that would require you to pull it up out of the ground in order to be able to see the roots. Because in order to be able to see the roots of something, you have to risk killing it, right? Yeah. So you have to risk literally pulling it up out of the ground. Now, if you pull a plant up out of the ground and the roots are there and they're healthy and they're real and it's alive, you can replant it and it survives. Absolutely. Maybe even stronger because you figure out it's in the wrong spot. Um, maybe it's a, you know, it's getting too or too, too much or too little sun. Maybe it's a, for whatever reason, you can put it in the right spot, but it survives is the point. If you pull it up out of the ground and there's like no root, it's just like dangling, there's nothing there or it's dead. Would I mean, but for some weird reason, the plant itself looks pretty healthy and normal. You don't know unless you risk pulling it up out of the ground and killing it. And I think that's kind of what deconstruction is. It's the willingness to risk killing something to find out if it's alive. And if it is alive, then it survives. Of course it does. If it's not alive, well, you've come into some very important and very high stakes information. Um, sure. that you, It's worth your attention. It's worth sure. the risk taken. All right, Jesse, can you... Give us a breakdown of what exactly he says is going on here. So what's interesting about this whole conversation, and especially where he starts with this example, is it's very rare that somebody invites you into their process of apostasy. And yeah, he's not, sure. he's welcoming the criticism and he's welcoming the challenge in a way. And he even says later on that he loves to talk about this. And he usually says deconstructionism gets a bad rap. And basically it's the idea of taking a plant and trying is that if the plant is your worldview. It's this idea of pulling it up and creating everything such that your entire worldview is a hypothesis. And the testing of the hypothesis for him in this metaphor is seeing whether or not the plant has roots. That is, whether it is legitimate truth. And if it is, you'll know because it will have taken root in the soil. And so apparently he's pulling it up and likes to say that there's always some threat to the plant itself when you depot a plant or you uproot it from the ground and that if it's healthy, it should su still be able to survive. And in fact, I think he says perhaps even grow more vigorously once it's yeah. replanted because it's experienced this kind of trauma. So it's funny because this is not too far away from a whole other biblical parallel altogether, right? Yeah. And so I, it's not our purpose tonight to sort of dissect what he has said. Uh, I think the guys on Popcorn Theology did a pretty good job of pushing back and utilizing some good apologetic, um, yes. some good uh, presuppositional apologetics to kind of push back on what he is saying. Um, so take a listen to that. But when I first heard this, I mean, apart from the fact that this this interview was just really heartbreaking for me, and I, I know that it's not anything new and it's not anything that I hadn't heard him say before. Um, this is a process that's been going on for many years. But it was heartbreaking to see and hear it. But the first thing that I thought of was... Christ's parable of the sower. And it's it's amazing to me um, how many parallels there actually are between what he was saying and, and what Christ says that I don't I don't think he's doing this on purpose because if he is, it doesn't really paint the picture that he wants it to paint because um, he's trying to say the problem is not with me. The problem is that Christianity is a bankrupt system, that there's no roots to Christianity or there's no roots to the Bible. But I'm going to read the whole parable. It's, it's a little bit long, but I'm going to just read the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to read the version out of Mark, um, Mark 4, chapter, uh, verse 1 through 20. Uh, and he, uh, he began, uh, he being Jesus, he began to teach by the sea. And the very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprung up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parable. He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. 
But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear and not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear it, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word so that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately received it with joy, and they had no root in themselves, but endured for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word until it proves unfruitful. Those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So Jesse, can you maybe just give us a summary of the, the parable here? Just break it down. Wow. Just the whole thing? Just Yeah, just break it down. <laughs> All right. So in this parable, we're obviously Jesus referring to himself or any person for that matter who is sowing the good news of the kingdom. And the seed is the word of the kingdom and the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. So he's throwing out three different types of soil, one that's falling along the pathway, one that's rocky, and then one that's thorny and weedy, or sorry, and then there's the final one, the good soil. Right. And so basically he's just trying to, and I kind of like to think of this as the parable of the soils, but it's because we're talking about how this preparation of the ground and its content, its contamination or lack thereof, really is the thing that brings about the fruit of the gospel, the growing of the plants themselves. So I think this is, you're right, a really good example to kind of pull alongside of what Derek Webb is saying. Again, as just kind of like a Petri dish for this conversation, it's interesting, what struck me as you read that, is he is right in the midst of this. Because when Jesus explains even what the parable is for, he talks about those who are able to see but not comprehend. And how often do we get a really clear-cut example of somebody who sees so clearly But I think if you listen to the interview, you'll want to throw your phone at times because you want to say, why can't you just understand then what you so clearly see? Yeah. And so the reason that this, um, the reason that I wanted to read specifically out of Mark versus the account in Matthew or Luke is in Mark's account, he includes, when Christ explains the parable, he includes a detail that the others do not. So um, he says specifically in verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. So right. what what we see is that this seed that's being scattered indiscriminately, right? We have to be careful with parables because parables are not allegories. So we shouldn't look for a one-to-one correlation between every single element of the parable. Um, but this is one of those rare parables that Jesus actually gives us the full teaching. Most of the time he teaches the parable and he doesn't explain it in any depth, but here he does. So the sower is the word, or the sower is the one who sows the word, and the sower is sowing the word. So when when Derek Webb talks about how he he uprooted his worldview, he thinks that he's talking about uprooting the the scriptures or Christianity as a whole and showing that Christianity doesn't have root. But if we take this parable seriously, then we see not only is Derek, not only is Derek the one who sees, but doesn't perceive, he hears, but he doesn't understand. And he recognizes that if that's true, that's intentional on God's part. But what we see is that he is the rocky soil. He's the rocky ground. So In verse 16, it says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Now that describes Derek Webb to a T. He, I I believe he grew up in a Christian family. He was in this multi-million, you know, platinum Christian band that traveled the whole world, had, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, But it says, and they had no root in themselves. They endured a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So Derek uses his sort of his parable of the plant to represent Christianity as a worldview, not having any roots. Right. But what I think actually happened, and this is sort of mind boggling to me, is he dug himself up out of the ground and examined himself and realized that he did not have any roots. And that's probably probably would be a hard pill for him to swallow, even even with all the ways he's acknowledged the truth of that. 
is that it's not the word that was faulty, right? All of the seed that is scattered is seed that could bear fruit. None of the seed is defective. It's not like the sower goes, oh, this is junky seed, and he throws right. it away. It's all the same seed. It all has the same potentiality to grow and bear fruit. But depending on where the seed lands or on whom the word falls, it bears fruit or it doesn't. So I, I just think, you know, it's really important for us to understand this. There's, there's implications for evangelism in this parable. We sow the word indiscriminately, Right. But I think there is something to this too in verse 17, that when the persecution or tribulation arises on account of the word, really central to Derek's story, and he doesn't get into it that much in, in this interview, but he talks about it elsewhere, is he went through this long period of really difficult um, moral difficulties. And I, I don't know how much he would um, take ownership over the moral failings in his life. I, I haven't heard that aspect of it from him. But um, as far as I understood the account, he was engaged in an affair and it resulted in his divorce. And that resulted in um, something you see from a lot of these Christian artists that fall away from the faith or in some sort of scandal. They get ostracized from their fans. They get ostracized from their family, from their community, from their friends. They A lot of times it affects their livelihood. And the reason is not usually because their friends and family are straight up ostracizing them, but because there's usually a lack of genuine repentance on their part. And so their friends and family call them to account. They call them to be accountable to this, and they won't. And so they fall away. And I get the impression that that's probably the nature of what happened in Derek's story, is that when, when this all happened with his, his marriage, he was not, we know he wasn't genuinely repentant. Because he is no longer in the faith. He doesn't claim the faith. So he couldn't have been genuinely repentant. So he falls away when this persecution would be tribulation. I won't, won't call it persecution, but tribulation, difficulties, this, this struggle that comes about on account of the word, he falls away. And for me, I mean, I guess I don't know if, what you have to add to that, but this, this was just so in my face when I was listening to it. I just couldn't help. I think I texted you right when I got to work and was like, you have to listen to this interview. Right. We have to talk about it because I've never seen a better example of someone who demonstrates the reality of this parable. It's jarring because he is so articulate and outspoken about this. And he expresses a really strong and thorough knowledge of these things. For sure, he has mixed the metaphor here because what he believes he's doing, and he's, he believes, I think, that this is a pretty damning example. This plant, though, he confuses the plant and says, basically, this is the Christian worldview, which I've uprooted and shown to be lacking in true right. roots. The problem is, the way that Jesus explains to us this, is that really, the plant is him and the soil is the problem. Right. So, in this analogy, these believers who are in the rocky soil, they hear the gospel. And as you pointed out, this always floored me, they receive it joyfully. Right. So they're not even receiving it in a kind of nefarious or self-serving way per se, at least not that we can tell. They receive it joyfully, but there's no generation in their heart. Yeah. And so I think this represents those believers who are merely like quote unquote converts to religion. So they haven't really truly believed. They look good at first, but like you said, as soon as they get called to some kind of serious commitment of faith or discipleship or trial persecution, they just bail out. Yeah. And I mean, that could be for him that he couldn't bear the weight of the criticism from non-believers during hard times, or that this for some reason didn't comport or help him to pass through these hard times that he, he encountered, or he did not employ faith and everything that he believed in terms of his decision-making, which then created a cycle of this kind of problem. But this rocky or hard layer, I think in the hearts represents this inner, more subtle hard-heartedness. And that's the, the cautionary tale for us. Like right. there's still a clinging to fleshly past and a willingness not to repent here. And so the soil of the, this rocky soil represents people, I think, who are temporary believers. At least that's the way that I would describe it. And yeah. what's interesting too, is there may be a bit in this of, and I don't know if these are mute, exactly mutually exclusive after they're given to us in the parable, but there is, I think even here, as he describes it, some thorny and weedy soil because there is this choking out of yeah. the gospel message by secularism, by what he believes to be better standards, naturalism, science. So yeah. these things kind of prove that I don't think there was a lot of genuine saving 
grace in his life. But I also think that he's, he may think that he's smarter than what the gospel presents as the reason for the why thing, why, reason why the world exists and why things are the way that they are. Yeah. It's hard to tell because there's, there's a lot of nuances to what he's saying, but at the end of the day, I think why this is probably going to be jarring to many people is they'll listen to it. And we get jarred because it betrays that somewhere, even as good reformed people, somewhere in the recesses of our mind, when we think about the fire of salvation, we have this conception that there is a spark that inflames salvation because of somebody's intelligence. Yeah. That somehow if you're working with somebody, listening to somebody, in community with somebody, and if they reach this level where you think, wow, they're really intelligent theologically, this person is for sure saved. No doubt about it. Yeah. And this just proves that all of that is nonsense. That when we say we really do need God in every conceivable way to understand what the gospel is, uh, you know, just like in Lydia's case, that she her heart was open so she could understand the gospel. That's like a for real thing. It's not something we say because we're asking for somebody with maybe a lesser amount of education or not that much of a turn of mind for theology to be able to understand these things. This is for the, and perhaps especially for those who think they know best to have the mind that can conceive of these things and even yet still be entirely lost in them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's just, there's two other points that I want to draw out in this text is um, I think sometimes we hear about like a celebrity who has had some sort of experience with the church and and starts to look as though they're good soil. Like Justin Bieber comes to mind right now. He's got this thing going on where he's had some interactions with Hillsong Church and there's really? a couple yeah, there's a couple clips wow. out there of him and he he actually seems to be, you know, more or less articulating the gospel. Right? right. He's talking about how we have to live lives that are honorable to God. He's talking about how we can't earn salvation. I mean, outwardly, he's saying the right things, which is actually a little bit surprising if his primary interaction has been with Carl Lentz. But everybody on the internet that I've run into is freaking out about this. They're like, oh my goodness, Justin Bieber has become a Christian. Listen to him preach that pure gospel. Well, give it a little time, right? And that right. that's exactly it, is that the the rocky soil, the seed that falls on the rocky soil springs up quickly because there's no soil, right? If you put a seed in very shallow soil, you're going to see a sprout very quickly. But that sprout will not survive if it can't get down into the soil where there's nutrients. And so, so I see some of these sort of Christian almost like overnight Christians that happen in the world of celebrity. You know, maybe it's a, a football player, right? There was a picture floating around of some football players that were baptizing each other in the team jacuzzi in the training room or something. And people were like, oh man, look at this. This is so great. The gospel is going forth. Maybe, maybe not. And what we see in this parable is that what we know and how we can tell that the good soil, the seed is falling on good soil, is not that the sprout comes up but that it bears fruit. Exactly. And so I think we have to be really cautious <clears throat> when we look at a, a celebrity Christian of any kind, because Derek was a Christian celebrity producing theologically sound music for a decade. And, and he, he says it with a little bit of swagger. I don't know if he meant to or not, but he says in the, in the interview that he taught a lot of the people that he's that our our court kind of questioning this. He taught a lot of these people their theology, and that may or may not be true to various degrees. But I remember the first time I heard the song "Thankful," right? And and it's all about. And at the end, he goes into this long conversation, and we can talk a little bit about it later. But he goes into this long thing about Lazarus, about how he's just like Lazarus, and and he hears God's voice, and he stands and walks to God because he has no choice, right? This is a song that beautifully portrays the gospel. I am thankful because I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. That's the chorus of the song. But yet he still was rocky ground with no soil. Right. And this was, that was, as hard as this may be to believe, that was not the fruit. That was the sprout and the sprout died. Now, what exactly is that we can look at a person and see fruit that's 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold? That's going to be different for every person. Right. right? Somebody's fruit may never be that ex extravagant, right? And we may have looked at Derek Webb, who was doing missionary work and all this stuff, and said, that's really good fruit. But it was 
the the end result tells us the status of the fruit and that was the sprout and the sprout died because there were no roots and this is such a beautiful parable because Jesus is just so brilliant in what he uses as examples. And this idea of a plant is wonderful because we like the immediacy of results. And so especially in our day and age when anything can get published and then republished all over the place and known more or less instantly through mass notifications. The Justin Bieber thing, I didn't hear about that. That's wild. But that's a really good example because all that proves, presumably, is he's just not the soil on the path. Like he's receptive in some strange way. It's not being snatched up right away in so much as we can tell. But you're right. The difference is the soil that's on in that's rocky and the one that's contaminated with weeds, it's just been tilled over enough that a seed can sink into it with some depth and germinate and they'll both right. pop up. And at first they're all going to look the same. And so it takes time to produce fruit. Real fruit is a test that God brings us through. And sometimes our fruit is small to begin with, but right. the whole point would be that we become a giant tree that's just like pumping out good, delicious spiritual fruit. And that right. does take time. So yeah. it's almost it's almost not right for any of us to get all pumped up about somebody, quote unquote, becoming a Christian because they did some kind of public act or have said the right words that we expect here, especially in our day and age where there's money to be made from saying those things. There right. is publicity to be won. There are markets to be taken over because certain words comport and resonate with certain people. We should be a little bit measured and always be asking, where's the fruit at? Um, I think it's okay to be cautiously optimistic if that's fair. Like in in other parables where Jesus talks about the tares and the wheat, for instance, we know they're both going to be present. What he's not telling us to do is to sort that out for ourselves, to give everybody every opportunity. Like if Justin Bieber wants to come chill at my church and come do a Bible study, I'm going to say, yeah, come to the Bible study. I'm not going to say, I don't think you're a Christian yet. You need to stay away. Right. But the point is that we need to take this parable as kind of the mantra for how we understand what it means to discern who are Christians and who are not. And we sh- that should be something that we're doing. I mean, would you agree? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I affirm your caution entirely. Like we have to be careful. And, and, let me let me just clarify this. It's okay for us to have a little bit of measured excitement about the fact that Justin Bieber seems to be have someone at least is giving him the information about the gospel. Right? Somebody is feeding him the raw data and he seems to have at least assented to its truth. Right. Whether or not he's actually placed his faith in Christ is yet to be seen. And I think that's where we we miss the we miss the force of this parable is that we see the sprout coming out of the ground and we think that that means that a person has come to faith. Right. But we can't, the, the biblical test for whether or not, the external test for us to look at someone and determine whether or not they have, have had faith and have actually been united to Christ is whether or not they bear fruit. And so until someone like Justin Bieber or Derek Webb, I guess, or Chris Pratt is another one, right? He's, he was in Infinity War. Uh, he's got this huge career. And, you know, he talks about how he he was grew up as a Christian. And when their kid was sick, they prayed through it all. And yet he divorced his wife after like five or six months of uh, irreconcilable differences. So, so we have to look at that and say like fruit. We can't say, well, just because this person has been bearing something that looks like fruit for a long time. Or just because they're bearing something that looks like really great fruit, we can't know that that's actually fruit until there's been a sufficient, a sufficient test of that. Right. And ultimately, it's not until the last day that that, that test is finalized. Because Correct. any one of us can fall away from the faith at any time. If, if the Spirit has not regenerated us and all that we have are external um, accoutrements of the faith, then that will ultimately not work, right? Christ says that those who will be saved are the ones who persevere until the end. So unless you have any other last thoughts about this, I think we can kind of move on to the next piece we wanted to talk about. Well, let me just say this. You know, like our culture is a culture of the fake and the faux. And so it's really easy, I think, to give off the appearance of of fake fruit. Like some wax fruit looks awesome when you see it on a table. And especially through social media or any kind of presentation, especially with the help of a good marketing agency, you can make anything sound pretty darn good. And it strikes me that 
the real testing, I think, of the fruit of squeezing an orange and getting orange juice happens under pressure and in circumstances that are beyond our control. So when we contrive things in such a way to make it seem like we have fruit, I always find it hard to believe that that's actual fruit. And this is not to say that people who are genuinely coming under the sovereignty of God, love the Lord Jesus Christ and are regenerated, don't make mistakes, sometimes colossal right. mistakes. Yeah. What it does mean is even in that time of colossal mistakes, you still see the fruit that is borne out through repentance and selflessness and love and patience and kindness. I would almost make the argument perhaps you see it the most in times like that. Yeah. And that's how you know it's genuine. When there's nothing to be gained, when there's only humility, that is, I think, where you can look and say there's, there's real understanding. You know, it struck me when you were talking, you use this word that I hear a lot in my line of work and that people actually rarely understand. And I think it serves as a, as a weird example if I can go on this tangent for a quick second. Let's do it. And that is um, correlation. Like, you know what that word means, right? Presumably you have a definition. We use yeah. it casually a lot of the times. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm talking to somebody and we're talking about correlation, I would say nine times out of 10 don't actually know what that means. But if you ask somebody, what does it mean? They could say to you something like super nerdy, like correlation is the covariance of X variable and Y variable divided by the product of their standard deviations. That sounds wicked smart. And you'd probably think, <laughs> okay, that person understands what it means. But if you, I bet if you said to that person still, okay, but tell me what it means. What do I yeah. do with this number? How do I understand it? They might still be in struggle there because you might ask, well, what is covariance, the numerator in that? And they might say it's the cross product of the average deviations from their own arithmetic mean. That also sounds super smart. But what, we're, what I'm seeing here is that a lot of the time, even somebody can know all these smart statistical details, give you all the mathematical definitions and still not actually be able to internalize it into the essence of their being such that they can explain to you how it actually can be used and what it means practically and how it changes our understanding of the world. And that is this entire parable for me and especially as manifest in, in Derek Webb. He knows this stuff and he talks about it very confidently. And he's like you said, what's odd is he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be like, well, what you're saying is off the mark or it's, it's heretical. He is right on the money. But this is the kind of thing, like I've said before, where if somebody can walk into an American Idol audition thinking they are legitimately going to win the contest and they open their mouth and it sounds like somebody's punching a cat in the gut, how can it be? They cannot even perceive that they're totally tone deaf. And that is the same thing here to mix metaphors. It's like, I think I have all the knowledge. I know the mathematical calculation. I do understand it. And it's an adventure in missing the point. Yeah, I've got two questions. First, uh, if anyone uh, in our audience has the gift of interpretation and can tell me what any of the words that Jesse just said means, <laughs> please give us a call. Um, second, I want to know how you know what it sounds like when you punch a cat in the gut. I mean, I'm just envisioning based on those episodes I've seen of somebody. I mean, I don't, I'm not a big cat person. Are you? Yeah. I like cats. I like dogs better, but I like cats. Okay. I know that can be a polarizing thing, but I see a lot of parallels actually sometimes between like mathematics and theology because they both use specialized words. Yeah. And when people use those words, we tend to automatically presume they know what they're talking about. And for that matter, that they are probably connected in a deep way with the subject matter that they're expounding upon. And especially with theology, that can be so dangerous because, yeah. I mean, especially in, I'm guessing in the line of your education, you've at least come across as I have people who are professing the faith in some kind of scholastic way and yet are totally disconnected from the faith in a very practical way. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we had friends in seminary who were sleeping with each other and that, I mean, you, you see that all over the place in seminary that there are there are people there who um, are either going into the ministry or they're going into the academy and they're going in for illegitimate reasons. They're either you know they're going into the ministry because there's some love they they believe there's some sort of prestige or you know my dad was a pastor and so I'm going to be a pastor right. I'm going to be the sixth generation of pastors um, or you have people going into the academy because they they're puffed up with knowledge um, and and I don't want to um, stand in judgment over people who go into seminary with wrong motives and, and 
all of us have wrong motives in some area. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There are people who have all of the knowledge in the world, but that knowledge has not penetrated to continue the analogy of the soils, has not penetrated below the surface. And the odd thing is we, at least I do, still have this visceral response where I get surprised about that. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me that somebody could have all that knowledge and really not be changed by the gospel. And yet what we see in this parable is Jesus was like, I said this from the beginning. Right. Like basically apostasy has existed before there was even time. We can start with Satan and then go all the way through the Old Testament, which is really a history of God's grace and judgment on apostate nation. (laughs) So it's, it's just this actually should be something that is more top of mind for us. And I think we would be better to be guarded about it. I mean, I think of as well, Judas, who, you know, the classic answer from a reform person from like the reform Sunday school grad of why did Jesus allow Judas, you know, into the band of 12 was obviously to fulfill the prophecy. Right. Beyond that, I think there's also another reason, which is when they're having the last supper and Jesus says, yo, in the Greek, yo, one <laughs> of you is going to betray me. They all start asking, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Yeah. I think part of what we get from that is that just as Paul says us to ask us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, we should all at some point be asking, is it I, Lord? Like you said, which was really good. If Derek Webb can essentially have this dramatic fall where he says, I'm telling you all in no unashamed language, I'm walking away. Actually, I mean, there's a wonderful play on words, right? Between, you would know this better than me, between apostle which is sending out an apostate, which is standing out that he is literally saying, I'm standing out. I'm standing this one out. I'm bailing altogether. And I'm bailing because I understand everything, at least the subject matter, the concept. So, you know, this idea that we don't need to be worried about our salvation, but at the same time, it's interesting to me that Paul says, you ought to test that to make sure that you're in the faith. And what we get from Judas is probably a little bit of holy dread that reminds us, yeah, I got to check myself. Before I wreck myself. Yes. <laughs> you just gave me this look like, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> so we, we've said several times now that Derek Webb art, can, knows and can articulate the gospel. So I'm, I want to play a clip um, that just demonstrates that. And if you're like me, uh, this will make you weep. Because this is probably one of the more beautiful articulations of the Reformed understanding of the gospel than I, that I've ever heard. I'm not sure that I've ever heard anyone articulate. I mean, we've got themes about the, the pactum salutis and the, the glory of God in eternity past and the, or, you know, the predestining of salvation of sin. I mean, it's, it's, it's all there. I mean, this guy has read Bovink. It's clear that he's studied this stuff. So we're going to play the clip and then we'll just unpack it a little bit. There are some who were from before the foundations of the earth were God's chosen people. It's covenantal. And so they were in a sense, always their whole story and God's whole narrative and the whole economy of salvation for his chosen people was always that they would be saved. He would save them who he called. He justified, who justified, he glorified. He's the, it's the golden, it's the golden chain of salvation um, in Romans. And if that's the truth, and their names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and if you go that covenantal route, then you're right. And it's like there isn't really technically, in a temporal sense, which is really only our reality, because time is a construct, and it's something that God invented, according to the Bible. If that's the truth, then in, in a real sense, from forever, and in, the, in God's imagination, from as, for as long as the Trinity has existed, there, has, there have been a group of people who he always knew he would accomplish salvation for, who the cross were sufficient and efficient for, um, and who, who were those he was saving, those who the Father gave the Son, and none of whom the Son could lose, not even one could be plucked from his hand. I mean, that's, it's the, those who nothing could separate from the Father's love at the end of Romans 8. I mean, that's the people you're talking about. And I'm, my, my previously held beliefs on theology were very covenantal and very mm-hmm. reformed, and so that is familiar to me, but it's either covenantal or it's more leaning on the Wesleyan, Arminian, free will version, which is there has to be a moment before which you were not saved and a moment after which you are. And it was more of a, 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 a thing that you chose, which is complicated when you get to Ephesians 2 and things like that. But yeah. but I'm, I, I want to follow you, but I'm saying I, I resonate with it because I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm down with that because that sounds like a um, salvation is a work of, of the spirit from beginning to end, all the way from the beginning, 
to all the way to the end mm -hmm. or else it's not because for you to say like there's a lot of reasons people come to salvation actually that's not true there's only one and it's this and it's the holy spirit wow it's heavy yeah yeah i mean it's it's it it really does give me that sense of holy dread that you were just talking about because it it's like you walk into it and you you think about you know i've got stacks of theology books all around me right and and i i'm actually reading this stuff and I hope it's penetrating me, but if you were to ask Derek Webb 15 years ago, if his theological studies had penetrated his heart, he would have said, yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I am sold out. For, I've devoted my life to following Jesus and there is no turning back. And then he turned back. Right. So I, I don't, I want to go, um, I want to go to Hebrews six and we're, we're going to be coming up on time. So I don't think we're going to get to our third topic, but um, I want to go to Hebrews 6 and just talk about this. And they're having some really good discussions over on the podcast um, about this. They, they kind of talked through it a little bit on one episode, and they're going to spend some more time in some future episodes talking about it, I think, too. Um, but um, I want to start, I'll just start at the beginning of the chapter, uh, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 6. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, on all outward appearances, this passage is a description of Derek Webb, right? He is the, the, the stereotypical, prototypical apostate. And he, he would, and, and the only reason I'm saying that as strongly as I am is because he has and would absolutely agree with me on that. I've heard him say it. I don't remember if he said it specifically and if he used the word apostasy in this episode, but he has and, and applies that label to himself almost with a sort of, I don't want to say a sort of joy, but it's almost like a badge of honor that he wears. That there he, is a pride. He was mature enough to see the bankruptcy of Christianity right. and walk away from it. But this is, this is what we're talking about. Right, I know there's disagreements between how Presbyterians and Baptists understand what it means to taste the heavenly gift and share in the Holy Spirit, but it's undeniable that Derek Webb, at least on some level, had experienced the blessings that come with being among the people of God. Right. There are concrete blessings that come from participating in the fellowship of the saints, even as an outsider. Right throughout all of Israel's history, we see again and again that there are benefits for the alien that are among them, even if they never become Israelites. There's still benefits for the aliens among them that they have certain. The, the the Sabbath, for example, is a blessing for God's people, but the the sojourners in Israel that are not Israelites also bear the benefit of rest on the Sabbath. Right, you can't make your right. you can't make your Hittite slave work for you on the Sabbath because that's not how God's people operate. So Derek has tasted the goodness of God's people. He's tasted the goodness of what it is to be among God's people. And and he has said in the past that that's a time in his life where he felt loved. He felt like he had this community. And one of the things it seems like he laments through all of this is the loss in some ways of that community. Yet he turned away from it. So how, how do we, how do we wrestle with that? How do we grapple with that? Well, I mean, some of the strongest words in scripture are reserved for those who are apostate. I mean, the language you just read is really condemning. It, that sh is equally jarring to me because it is hard to hear and know that, save for the grace of God who allows us to persevere, any one of us could be having to bear that kind of judgment. Yeah. And so you're right. The apostate has heard repeatedly of the majesty of Christ. They've heard of Jesus' glory and redemption. It's been proclaimed to them continually. And this is like a walking of away of all that. So 
the act of apostasy proclaims that Jesus deserved to be crucified. His life, his death, his resurrection, they're not worthy of the apostate's time. And in this particular case, this is what makes it so unusual, is somebody who's willing to be candid and say that that is actually how they feel. I mean, yeah. normally we have to infer that and sometimes almost communicate that or press that point and say, this is what you're doing. But, you know, the Greek word for shame there in Hebrews 6, I think literally means to cause someone to suffer public disgrace, to openly discredit them. Yeah. So for all of this, apostasy is an absolutely appalling act because that is what it is doing. It's causing basically the suffering of Christ all over again. And so it's hard for us to reconcile with because... There is a place where it's appropriate for us to go after the apostate, to continue to pray, to want to plead with them, to weep over them. At the same time, there is this line we can cross over where we suddenly make it seem like, well, to the apostate, God really needs you on his team. He really wants you in particular on his team. And what's funny is it's almost as if Derek in his interview is super comfortable with God rejecting him. And in point of fact, he references a lot of other secular authors, naturalists, atheists, and he holds their same perspective, which is basically like, if God wants me, he has to come get me, which which is such an arrogant attitude. I mean, that's the exact opposite of basically what we're talking talking about here, about the one who comes under a saving faith. So I think the, the thing that I've been trying to remember as I've been listening to his interview is that apostates apostatize because they really are not Christians. I mean, they're, right. they're of the flesh, and that means they're going to be spiritually dead. And that's like Romans 8 stuff, straightforward, which he quotes from, so he's right. down with that. And since they do not have the Holy Spirit, they cannot experience one of the most miraculous gifts and the powerful miracles of God, which is sanctification. Right. So this time between, even if it was childhood, even if it was writing, he knows all the right words to say. But my question would be, and this is the thing that's hard for us to ascertain, is where was the abiding in Christ even during that time where the fruit should have been growing? Where was that? Right. How do we assess that? that? That for me is like the point where I can only turn inward and assess for my own life. Am I abiding in Christ? Forget about all the showiness. What am I like? What happens when the doors close when it's just me or when I'm alone at my work desk? What's going through my thought? Are things being taken? What's going through my thoughts? What's going through my head? Are my thoughts being taken captive for Christ? It's that abiding, which I think is the complement to understanding the parallel and the parable of the soils. That's where I would, that's kind of where I land. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of, at the end of this passage, we have this statement that the, the, the land that the rain has fallen on and bears fruit is not who um, the, the author is talking about. Right. Right. The, the person who turns away from Christ that is not the land that has drank up the rain and is bearing fruit. Instead, the land that bears thorns and thistles is bearing is is the apostate. And and for me, what was um, particularly troubling is you know for all of his um, sort of laissez faire. Yeah, I love everybody. All my friends, my friends are free to believe whatever they want, and I think it's great. Um, there is a level that Derek Webb has said, if God exists, I mean, he said it, that if the God of the Old Testament is a mean dude, he's a nasty dude. Yep. So there's all sorts of stuff that's going on beyond just the apostasy. But he, he is basically saying that this God that I used to proclaim, that I used to preach, he is not worthy of my time. This Jesus that I used to say died for me, that I used to say I loved with my whole heart, he was just some peasant carpenter 2,000 years ago that made a strange blip on the historical radar. And, and what's troubling about that, you know, the, the, other, the other apostasy passage, the other big apostasy passage in Hebrew, talks about a person who tramples on the blood of the covenant that, that sanctified or set them apart. And... You know, Paul uses that language of sanctification in some senses of of being set apart for unique blessing by proximity to the church, right? The children of a believing parent is made holy. They participate in the the covenant blessings in in a certain sense. And, And so, like we said, Derek, by all accounts, for a very long time, um, a good portion of his life, 
participated in those covenant blessings. He participated in the fellowship of the church. He participated in proclaiming the Lord's the Lord's greatness. Um, and then he literally trampled on the blood of that covenant, right? By saying that it's no longer valuable. And so, so I, I'm not going to try to explain how we wrestle with the idea that um, a person who apostatized cannot be restored because we know that that's not the case, mm-hmm. right? So, so we know that the, the act of apostasy in the believer, if they really are called of God, is not permanent apostasy. So I would be, right. I would be, um, I would be more likely to say that the the person he's talking about in Hebrews six is the person, just like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If if you still are concerned about the fact that you might have done it, it means you haven't done it, because it's a permanent state. The person who walks away from the faith and dies in that state is the person that that Hebrews six is talking about. Right. Derek may or may not be that person. We don't know. We hope he's not, but. He fits the description of a person who has drank up the rain and produced nothing but thorns because all of the good, the so-called good works that he did during his Cadman's Call era and his solo time as a Christian artist and the missions work he did, you know, he worked with Compassion International that, you know, all of those kinds of things that the big recording Christian recording artists do, all of those things have now been tainted by the fact that he is saying none of those really matter. None of those were really valuable. None of those really had any purpose. I thought they did, but they, I was wrong. They didn't. Right. So all of the good fruit that it appeared that he bore really is thorns and thistles at this point. Right. That's where that abiding is so important because right. we should expect actually that the profile of the apostate is going to include stuff like that. So yeah. while it's shocking to hear it said from his mouth, in some ways we shouldn't be surprised because just like we talked about joyfully receiving the word, which he clearly did. And by the way, who wouldn't love to be part of a church, even as like a social community? Right. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff about being among like-minded people and having all the benefits of that kind of family in lots of ways. So though apostates associate visibly with the community of the spirit, they cannot do so spiritually by being conformed into the image of Christ. So it's going to appear that they are there externally, but they're not experiencing sanctification because they have never experienced salvation. And so our churches should at some point always be in these seasons, not these seasons, they should always be in every season, I guess, exposing, so to speak, apostates. Because the person, like when you sit down on the Lord's Day, we shouldn't have any misconception that we're in mixed company, that there's tares and wheat, even sitting in our same pews or same right. rows. And so because of that, if the flesh cannot last in an obedient church where the word is exposited, where sin and repentance is regularly talked about, where sacrifice is prioritized, where the beatitudes are practiced, where humility is emphasized, and the members are necessarily getting into each other's lives like Hebrews 3 style. In right. such a setting, we would expect that the apostate is going to self-select out of that at some yeah. point. And yeah. It it should happen, right? Yeah, and I think this is probably where we'll close. Is we have to be calling the people who call on the name of Christ, the people who claim the name of Christ. We have to be calling them to holiness, right? We have to be calling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because that is right. It's not our job to pluck up the tares, because we're we're probably going to pluck up the wheat while we do that. But we have to be calling the body of Christ to holiness. And you're absolutely right that for a time, you know, um, dad and I were talking about Andy Stanley this morning and, and we're, we'll probably talk about Andy Stanley next week uh, or the week after when we do heresy cast, cause we're going to talk about Marcionism, but Andy Stanley um, has a huge church, right? A giant church. Right. And there is very little preached there about holiness. And the fact is, is that Andy Stanley prides himself on the fact that atheists love coming to his church. Well, you know what atheists hate? They hate being told that they have to live holy lives. Right. And so if you preach, if you call Christians to holiness according to the law of God, which is not, that is not legalism. It's not legalism to tell Christians that they're required to be obedient to God. That's just Christianity. But if you tell people that they are that there's an expectation on them to be bearing fruit and if they fail to bear fruit they are liable to judgment now 
Don't take what I just said and hear it as though saying the fruit saves you or that the lack of fruit causes judgment. What I'm saying is that if there is a lack of fruit, it means that the seed has not grown. And if the seed has not grown, it means there was no regeneration. Right. And so if you tell people, look, if you do not bear fruit, you are liable to judgment, they will flee from your church like rats on a sinking ship. And that is not a bad thing, right? If your church right. exactly. loses 50% of its people, but all of those people were false converts, that is a beautiful, glorious victory for the gospel. Yes. Because it means that they heard the gospel, they were called under conviction by the power of the law, and they did not want a part of it. And they departed from us because they were never of us, right? This is all over the New Testament, people. So don't don't look at this as though we're, we're saying anything novel or we're saying anything new. But this this is something we have to get our heads around because we, you know, I, I kind of went through youth group during like the, the major boom in youth group stuff, right? My youth group had 500 people. By the time I got to senior high and it was no longer like confirmation and kids' parents weren't making them go to it anymore, we had 150 kids regularly attending Wednesday night, utterly voluntary youth group. No benefit, no certificate, no final, no like graduation point. Just They were just there because they wanted to be there. I can count on one I can count, there's maybe four people that I can count that I have regular interactions with who are still in the faith. And that's pretty average. That's a pretty average number of people who walk away from the faith. And so we have to get our heads around this because, you know, most of our listeners are people in the reform pub, right? right. I'm, I'm speaking to you right now, pub. There are people up, in the pub? group that are not Christians who, if you call them to holiness, they will rage quit out of your life faster than you can imagine. That's not bad, right? Listen to me. That is not a bad thing. Right. So I know we're harping on this. I'm getting all sweaty. I need to go take a shower because I'm probably stinky because I'm working up here. But Wow, that's a lot I of information. I should have turned my Fitbit on and saw how much steps I'm getting <laughs> from this. I'm getting credit for this as like an active hour right now. Yeah. I keep on thinking that I'm going to I'm gonna tell my Fitbit I'm doing a workout so it records how much I actually do during this time period and I forget to do it. I so love it. have to remind me. But- we just need to look at, at this situation with Derek Webb, and he's, he's just an example, right? This isn't really even about him. It's just a striking example that happened recently that is particularly poignant for us because this is someone who was part of our camp, right? right? Jason Stellman, a few years back before that, is another high profile. He was an ordained teaching elder in the PCA. He was the prosecutor on uh, Peter Lightheart's heresy case. He knew his stuff, and shortly after that, he converted to Rome. Right. I can I can give you dozens of examples of people. A good friend of mine who if if he had not done this, I would be doing a different podcast right now instead of this one. He he was on top of thing. He knew his stuff better than I do. And he's Roman Catholic now. And it breaks my heart. So this is not new. This is not something we can get away from. Right. We have to come to terms with it and understand what to do with it. In fact, like we were talking about before we started, I see apostasy as normative. That's the way the New Testament describes it. And yep. just, I hate to throw in statistics again, but based on sample size, if X percentage of people, let's say in the world, are going to be apostate, then we should expect to find them at all levels. And nobody yep. is impervious from it. And what yep. I like that you were saying, because I think this is a really good admonishment, is in some sense, a local church should be concerned if they never see apostasy because the scripture teaches that it's going to happen. Tares yep. accompany wheat. So if apostasy never happens, a church may want to examine whether or not their ministry is accommodating the tares, which is, I think, yeah. what you were saying. Yeah, so that's if, absolutely if fair. If I could close this out with like maybe a little bit of encouragement from Hebrews chapter 3, let me read just two verses, beginning at verse 12. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So I love this because in all our talk, it's reminded me, mutual exhortation is one of God's means of preventing apostasy. I mean, that's partly, I guess, why we do this, why we converse in this way and we yeah. want to have others join us. And so yeah. the writer of Hebrews wasn't just talking to elite Christians, but obviously everybody. So the address is to brothers and by extension sisters. And one of the responsibilities in getting to be a Christian 
is keeping each other away from the apostasy abyss. So I think that we should carry on with this type of talk, not be afraid to confront these types of issues and work toward remembering with our brothers and sisters that when we talk about the things of the gospel, it helps us remain on point by God's grace through the power of his Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. So we're going to wrap up this week. Um, like I said, if you, if you haven't listened to it, go check out that interview on Popcorn Theology. Um, this conversation will make a lot more sense if you listen to it. Um, and keep at it, guys. Keep at it, folks. It's, we got to keep growing in holiness. You have to. If you're not growing, then you're dying. Right. right. If you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. So keep at it. Yeah, J-O. All right. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh, what if I'm fine?